Chapter Ten of Molly Brown's Sophomore Days by Nell Speed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Debbie R. Baker Robinson. All's well that ends well. There was no happier girl in Wellington one morning than Nance Oldham, and all because she had been invited to the Thanksgiving dance at Exmoor College. Nance had never been to a real dance in her life except a shirtwaist party at the seashore where she had been a hopeless wallflower because she had known only one man in the room, her father. Now there was no chance of being a wallflower at Exmoor where a girl's card was made out beforehand and she had that warm glow of predestined success from the very beginning of the festivity. Molly and Judy were also invited, and the girls were to go over to Exmoor on the 645 trolley with Dr. and Mrs. McLean and return on the 1045 trolley, permission having been granted them to stay up until midnight. Three other Wellington girls were bound for the dance on the same car. A young teacher chaperoned this little company, of which Judith Blount was one. I wonder that Judith Blount can make up her mind to go to a dance, Judy Keene remarked to Molly. She's been in such a sullen rage for so long, she's turned quite yellow. I don't think she will enjoy it. It will do her good, answered Molly. Dancing always makes people forget their troubles. Just trying to be graceful puts one in a good humor. The scientific reason is, child, that it stirs up one's circulation. And brooding is bad for the circulation, added Molly. It had been a very gloomy holiday, the skies black and lowering, and a dead warm wind from the south. But there had been no sign of rain, and now, as they alighted from the car at Exmoor Station, they noticed that the wind had shifted slightly to the east and freshened. The great blanket of frowning black had broken, and a myriad of small clouds were flying across the face of the moon like a flock of frightened sheep. Molly shivered she had often called herself a human barometer and her spirits were apt to shift with the wind the wind has changed she observed to the doctor i feel it in my bones correct said the doctor scanning the heavens critically there's no flavoring extract so strong as a drop of east wind let us hope it will hold back a bit until after the shindig with all its penetrating qualities, however, the drop of east wind did not affect the air in the beautiful old dining hall of Exmoor, used always for the larger entertainments. Its polished hardwood floor and paneled walls, its two great open fireplaces in which immense back logs glowed cheerfully, made a picture that drove away all memory of bad weather. Then the music struck up. The dancers whirled and circled. Nance was in a seventh heaven. Her cheeks glowed, her eyes shone, and she seemed to float over the floor guided by the steady hand of young Andy, while his father looked on and smiled laconically. Every laddie man has lassie, he observed to his wife, and it's good luck for him when he draws a plain one with a bonny brown eye. She's not plain, objected Mrs. McLean. She has no furbelows in face, nor dress that I can see, answered the doctor. They're just a boy and a girl, Andrew. Don't be anticipating. There is no telling how often they may change off before the settling time comes. And was it your Ansel that trained so often? Asked the doctor with a twinkle in his eye. Nay, nay, laddie, she protested, leaning on the doctor's arm affectionately. But those were steadier days, I'm thinking. There's not so muckle change, said the doctor, when it comes to sweethearting. Many old-fashioned dances were introduced that night 
the cottage lancers and sir roger de coverley led off by the doctor and his wife whose old-world curtsies were very amusing to the young dancers and while the fun waxed fast and furious indoors outside queer things were happening the south wind gently and insistently battling with the east wind had conquered him for the moment all the little clouds that had been scuttling across the heavens before the east wind's icy breath now melted together into a tumbled fleecy mass snowflakes were falling softly and silently clothing the campus and the fields the valleys and hills beyond in a blanket of white then the angry east wind returned from his lair with a new weapon a drenching sheet of cold penetrating rain which changed to drops of ice as it fell and tapped on the high windows of the dining hall a warning rat-a-tat-tat quite drowned in the strains of music the south wind conquered and crushed crept away and the east wind summoning his brother from the north to share the fun played a trick on the world which people in that part of the country will not soon forget together they covered the soft white blanket with a sheet of ice as hard and slippery as plate glass at last having enjoyed themselves immensely they retired out came the moon again shining in the frozen stillness like a great round lantern in the meantime the dance went on and joy was unconfined nobody had the faintest inkling of the drama which had been acted between the east and the south winds most unconscious of all was molly who having danced herself into a state of exuberant spirits sat down to rest with lawrence upton in an inglenook of one of the big fireplaces as chance would have it they were joined by judith blount and a very dull young man who lawrence informed molly had more money than brains judith had not noticed molly at first probably she would never have chosen that particular spot if she had but the destinies of these two girls had been ordained to touch at intervals in their lives and whenever the meeting occurred something unfortunate always happened they were exactly like two fluids which would not mix comfortably together there was a general movement of partners for supper at this juncture and the two girls found themselves alone for the moment while their escorts departed for coffee and sandwiches are you having a good time molly asked glancing at judith timidly she would have preferred to have said nothing whatever, but she had made a compact with herself to try and overcome her dislike for this girl whom she had distrusted from the moment of their first meeting at the railroad station, when Mr. Murphy had given Molly's baggage check preference. Did I appear to be a wallflower? demanded Judith insolently. Oh, I beg your pardon, said Molly. I didn't mean that, of course. Then she sighed and turned toward the fire with a trembly, unnerved feeling i don't believe i'll ever get used to having people cross to me she thought it always frightens me i suppose i'm too sensitive she began to shiver slightly the wind is surely in the east now she added to herself when the young men came back bearing each a tray with supper for two she was grateful for the cup of steaming coffee will you hold this for a minute miss molly asked lawrence upton while i get a chair to rest it on lap tables are about as unsteady as tables on shipboard judith's partner had followed lawrence's example and presently the two students were seen hurrying through the throng each pushing a chair in front of him by some strange fatality history was to repeat itself just as he reached the girls the young person who had more money than brains slipped on a fragment of buttered bread which had fallen off somebody's plate skidded along bumped his chair into lawrence who lost his balance and fell against poor molly's tray then oh dreadful calamity 
over went the cup of coffee straight onto Judith's yellow satin frock. Molly could have sunk into the floor with the misery of that moment, and yet she had not in the least been the cause of the accident. It was a small-brained, rich individual who was to blame, but Judith was not in any condition to reckon with original causes. Molly had been carrying the tray with the coffee cups, and that was enough for her. She leapt to her feet, shaking her drenched dress and scattering drops of coffee in every direction. "'You awkward, clumsy creature!' she cried, stamping her foot as she faced Molly. "'Why do you ever touch a coffee cup? Are you always going to upset coffee on me and my family? You have ruined my dress. You did it on purpose. I saw you were very angry a moment ago, and you did it for revenge.' Molly shrank back in her seat, her face turning from crimson to white and back to crimson again. "'Don't answer her,' said a small voice in her mind. "'Be silent. Be silent.' "'But Miss Blount,' began her supper partner, feeling vaguely that justice must be done. "'I stumbled, don't you know? Awfully awkward of me, of course, but I slipped on an infernal piece of banana peel or something and fell against Upton. Hope your gown isn't ruined.' "'It is ruined!' cried Judith, her face transformed with rage. "'Is utterly ruined, and she did it. It isn't the first time she's flung coffee cups around. Last winter she ruined my cousin's new suit of clothes. She's the most careless, awkward, clumsy creature I ever saw. I—' A curious little group had gathered over near the fireplace, but Judith was too angry to care who heard what she was saying. In the meantime, Lawrence Upton had taken his stand between Judith and Molly, feeling somehow that he might protect poor Molly from the onslaught. Presently, he took her hand and drew it through his arm. Suppose we join the McLeans, he said. I see they are having supper all together over there. As they turned to leave, he said to Judith in a cold, even voice that seemed to bring her back to her senses. I upset the coffee. Blanchard fell against me and joggled my arm. If there is any reparation I can make, I shall be glad to do it. Whereupon, Judith departed to the dressing room and was not seen again until it was time to leave. What a tiger cat she is, whispered Lawrence to Molly as he led her across the room. Molly did not answer. She was afraid to trust her voice just then and still more afraid of what she might say if she dared speak. What was all that rumpus over there, demanded Judy when the young people had joined their friends. Oh, just a little volcanic activity on the part of Mount Etna and a good deal of slinging of hot lava. Miss Molly and I are refugees from the eruption, and Mount Etna has gone upstairs. You mean Miss Etna Blount? asked Judy. The same, said Lawrence. When it was time for the Wellington party to catch the trolley car home, they emerged from the warm, cheerful dining hall into a world of dazzling whiteness. The trees were clothed in it, and the ground was covered with a crust of ice as hard and shining as marble. A path of ashes was sprinkled before them, so that they walked safely as far as the station. "'Heaven help us at the other end!' Mrs. McLean exclaimed, clinging to the doctor's arm. The car was late in arriving at Exmoor Station. At last it hove into sight, moving at a hesitating gait along the slippery rails but it had a comfortably warm interior, and they were glad to climb in out of the bitter cold. All aboard, called the conductor. Last car tonight. There is always a gloomy fatality in the announcement, last car tonight. It is just as if a doctor might say, nothing more can be done. Clang, clang went the bell, and they moved slowly forward. 
After an age of slipping and sliding, frequent stopping and starting, and exchanges of loud confidences between the motorman and the conductor, the car came to a dead stop. Dr. McLean, who had been sound asleep and snoring loudly, waked up. Bless my soul, are we there? he demanded. No, sir, and far from it, answered the conductor, who had opened the door and come inside, beating his hands together for warmth. Far from it? What do you mean by that, my good man? asked the doctor. There ain't no more power, sir, answered the man. The trolley's just a solid cable of ice, and budge she won't. You couldn't move her with a derrick. But what are we to do? asked the doctor. I couldn't say, sir, unless you walked. It's only a matter of about two miles. Otherwise, you'd have to spend the night here, and it'll be a cold place. There ain't no more heat, is there, Jim? There ain't, was Jim's brief reply. I guess Jim and I'll foot it into Wellington, and the best you can do is to come along. The doctor and his wife conferred with the young teacher who had chaperoned the other party. The question was, would it not be a greater risk to walk two miles in thin-soled shoes and party dresses over that wilderness of ice than to remain snugly in the car until they could get help? The motorman and conductor were well protected from the cold and from slipping, too, with heavy overcoats and arctic shoes. While they were talking, these two individuals took their departure, letting in a cold blast of air as they slid the door back to get out. The Wellington crowd sat huddled together, hoping to keep warm by human contact. They tried to beguile the weary hours with conversation, but time dragged heavily and the car grew colder and colder. Some of the girls began to move up and down, practicing physical culture exercises and beating their hands together. I think it would be better to walk, announced Mrs. McLean at last. We are in much greater danger of freezing to death sitting here than moving. We'll stick to the track. It won't be so slippery between the rails. Even the doctor was relieved at this suggestion, fearful as he was of slipping on the ice. The good wife was right, as she always was, and the lassies had better take the risk and come along quickly. Before they realized it, they were on the track with faces turned hopefully toward Wellington. Scarcely had they taken six steps before three of the girls tumbled flat, and while they were picking themselves up, Dr. and Mrs. McLean sat down plump on the ice, hand in hand, like two astonished children. It was quite impossible to keep from laughing at this ludicrous situation, especially when the doctor's great ha-ha made the air tremble. The ones who were standing helped the ones who had fallen to rise and fell themselves in the effort. If we only had on skates, cried Judy, wouldn't it be glorious? We could skate anywhere, right across the fields or along the road. It's just like a sea of solid ice. For an hour they took their precarious way along the track, which was now on the edge of a high embankment. A grand place for coasting, remarked Judy, peeping over the edge. Suddenly her heels went over her head, and her horrified friends beheld her sliding backwards down the hill. Are you hurt at all, my lass? called the doctor, peeping fearfully over the side, and holding on to his wife as a drowning man catches at a life preserver. Hurt? No, cried Judy, convulsed with laughter. Do you think you can crawl back? asked Mrs. McLean doubtfully. Then Judy began the most difficult ascent of her life on hands and knees. There was nothing to take hold of, and when she had got halfway up, back she slipped to the bottom again. A second time she had almost reached the top when she lost her footing and once more slipped to the base of the embankment. You'd better go on without me, she cried, half sobbing and half laughing. The doctor was very uncomfortable. 
not for worlds would he have put foot outside the trolley rails but something had to be done let's make a human ladder suggested molly as they do in melodramas i'll go first nance you take my foot and somebody hold on to yours and so on then judy can climb up catching hold of us the doctor considered this a good scheme and the human chain was accordingly formed the doctor himself grasping the ankle of the last volunteer who happened to be judith blount but hardly had judy commenced the upward climb when the doctor's heels went over his head and the entire human ladder found itself huddled together at the foot of the embankment it's a case of every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost exclaimed the doctor sitting up stiffly and rubbing his shins help yourselves lassies i can do nae admire some of them reached the track at last and some of them didn't and those who couldn't make it were molly and judith blount you'll have to follow along as best as you can down there called mrs mclean grasping her husband's arm we'll keep an eye on you from above once more the belated revelers started on their way while molly and judith blount pursued a difficult path between a frozen creek and the trolley embankment End of chapter 10